Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Opening our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter writes to those who have been scattered abroad, the strangers scattered throughout the Black Sea area, chapter 1 and verse 1. They're up in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia. They're really far off from their homeland, having endured the persecution that came to Jerusalem and the church there. They've been scattered really to no man's land. And they have burdened hearts and they're being persecuted. And so in the time of that persecution, Peter writes to them and says, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're going to discover as you study First Peter that it is a letter of hope. The word hope comes up five times in First Peter. We continue, we have an inheritance, verse 4, incorruptible. I, that sounds like what we've been considering on Sunday evenings in Ephesians chapter 1. Both Peter and Paul wanted us to be reminded of this incorruptible inheritance. It's undefiled. It can't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, verse 4. Reserved for whom? Well, look at verse 5. Those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. We're kept. This verse is saying unto the coming of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise that is. What a glorious promise to know we're kept not by our own power, but the one, according to Philippians 1, who began a good work in us will perform it unto the day of our redemption. Our salvation wasn't by our own works. Our being kept is not by our own works. It's by His promise and by His power. Praise the Lord. Verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. What an awkward relationship, rejoicing, and yet going through a time of heaviness and many different varied temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found of the praise and honor and glory of the, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So much to see in these opening verses of 1 Peter. But we're going to zero in and focus on the verses that I'm about to read. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be wrought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, 
Because as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Way back in August of 1887, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was writing in a paper that he published on a regular basis from the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. The paper was under the title, The Sword and the Trowel, coming from the book of Nehemiah. The sword in one hand, building in the other, defending and building all the way. He wrote these words. A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. The inspiration of Scripture is denied. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment for sin is turned into fiction and the resurrection into a myth. Yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren, to maintain a confederacy with them. Then he says this, At the back of doctrinal falsehood comes a natural decline in spiritual life, evidenced by a taste for questionable amusements. Church members forget their vows of consecration and run with the unholy in ways of frivolity. The fact is that many would like to unite the church and stage, cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. When the old faith is gone and enthusiasm for the gospel is extinct, it's no wonder that people seek something else in the way of delight. Lacking bread, they feed on ashes. Rejecting the way of the Lord, they run greedily in the path of folly. I wonder what Spurgeon would think today. He looks at the lifestyle, if you were to look at the lifestyle, rather, of Christians in our generation. 2003, Kent Hughes, who for a long time was the pastor of the campus church Wheaton, Illinois, he published a book set apart, calling a worldly church to a godly life. In that book, Hughes said, among evangelicals, there's a great disconnect between what Christians believe and assimilate from sermons and Christian sources, and how they actually live. The contemporary evangelical church is not lacking for moral, spiritual instruction. It's lacking in its ability to remain uncontaminated by the unchristian thinking and morality of contemporary culture. In contemporary evangelicalism, there's been a lack of discernment regarding how the world has overwhelmed the thinking and the behavior of Christians. Those two pastors were separated by some 100 years, but those two pastors bear the same burden, and it's a biblical burden. It's the burden that's reflected here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Both men are calling Christians to live out their lives apart from the impurity of a polluted world. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1 is all about. Christians, according to John 17, are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. That isn't always easy. But it's always a necessity. Let me give you an assignment for just a moment. I want you to think with me about when you gave your life to the Lord. For some, you might have to think back a long way. For others, it might just be a short while. But most who really get serious about living for the Lord at some time in their Christian walk will experience what I know I experienced when I dedicated my life to the Lord. I found myself in conversations that seemed strained and awkward. I found myself fighting for relationships that I once enjoyed, but finding that some of those relationships were fading away 
because I no longer had things in common with some of the people that I once hung out with. And it wasn't always my decision for that relationship to be broken off. Often I found, and I'll share it in just a moment, I found that it was because of a stand that I took or something that I no longer would do that cost me friendships or caused me to live in a land of awkwardness. Have you ever experienced that? If you have, hang on a moment. I'm going to ask you to share just a couple of those experiences this evening because I do think it is all too common for believers. Now, the Spirit of God is leading Peter to write in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's writing to believers, challenging us to avoid the pollution of the world. In verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversations. Because it's written, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. He's writing to people who are going through a lot of persecution. Remember how 1 Peter begins in chapter 1 and verse 1? To the strangers who were scattered through Pontus and Galatia, all the way to Bithynia, strangers. That's an interesting word. In the original language, it's parapedinomos. Para means around. Pedidimos means like podiatrist, your feet. Literally, it's picturing people that are walking around. They're strangers. They're foreigners. They've gone to the far ends of the world in their imaginations or in their thoughts, far off from the beauty of Jerusalem in the Middle East where they once lived. They're now up near the Black Sea. They're near modern-day Russia and Ukraine. How long did it take for them to get there? I don't know, but they kept on going until they found themselves they thought out of harm's way. They're the strangers that were scattered. Now, that's another interesting word. The word scattered there in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 is diaspora. You've heard of the diaspora of the Jewish people? It's been happening for generations. Spora, we hear the word spore, means seed. Dia means through. And so, a diaspora is to scatter seeds throughout the world. These are the strangers who are scattered. And he acknowledges that they're going through a very difficult time. They're fighting the good fight. And in fighting the good fight, no doubt, they're often finding themselves weary and well-doing. They're in the world, but they are trying not to be of the world. Peter is now reminding these persecuted people of their glorious position in Christ. He uses significant theological terms to remind them of the glories of their position. He calls them elect in verse 2. They're elect. They're sanctified. They're sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. They've been set apart by the marvelous, merciful, gracious work of God. They've been begotten, he says, unto a lively hope. In verses 3 and 4, they have an inheritance that's incorruptible in the heavenlies. And you've got to be honest. Sometimes, as we think about the sweet by and by, it's difficult for us to live in the nasty now and now. We think about those glories of our incorruptible inheritance. It can be difficult when life is bruising us up quite badly. And that seems to be the case of the people who are living there in those nether regions. But they're being reminded of their wonderful position in Christ. Now, many ministries will stop their considerations of 1 Peter, somewhere around verse 12. Because the first 12 verses, while they recognize the burdens that the believers are going through, are wonderful verses describing our position without ever bringing the position down to practical, nasty, now and now terms. 
But when you come to verse 13, it says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now he's about to make some application. The application that's about to be made is application that fits all times, all people, everywhere. He's moving now from explaining the believer's position to making a practical application of the truths. And because of the wonderful position that's enjoyed by these Christians, they're about to be challenged not to fashion themselves, verse 13, after their, or, or verse 14 rather, not to fashion themselves according to their former lust, which they abided in when they were in ignorance. Instead, they're being called upon in verse 14 to be holy. So what are we learning? Well, we're going to discover that born-again believers are not to be like the world. Born-again believers are in holy priesthood according to chapter 2 and verse 5. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, they're a holy nation. In verse 9, again, they're a peculiar people. As such, they're supposed to abstain from fleshly lust, chapter 2 and verse 15, and to sanctify their hearts. Turn with me to chapter 4 and verse, chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. If you remember the assignment, the assignment was to think about perhaps an incident that happened in your life when you gave your heart completely to the Lord or in a time of surrender said, I'm, I'm going to put the Lord first. Perhaps it was at the time of your salvation, so perhaps for some after that. But look at verse 3 of 1 Peter 4. For the time past of your life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness and lusts, in excess of wine and revelings and banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot. They speak evil of you. The Lord began working in my heart my freshman year in college. When I went to college, I didn't go with any burden to be in ministry. (laughs) That was the furthest thing from my mind. I went to college out of a mandate given by my father who said, you're going to go to a Christian college one year. And I said, yes, sir. So I made application to Word of Life Bible Institute in Scroon Lake, New York. I didn't want to go to college anywhere, but I knew this. Scroon Lake only had one year. Dad can't send me back. And they accepted me. And then a buddy of mine said, hey, Chuck, I'm going to be going off to Bob Jones University in the fall. And a light bulb went off in my mind. I thought, well, you know, if I go there, at least I'll have a friend. That's pretty much all I knew about going off to Bob Jones University. Wow, was I in for some surprises. <laughs> but I had a friend. So Joe and I went off to Bob Jones, and all of a sudden, I got hammered. Chapels and roommates and scripture that was uh, shining a light on my heart, how far away I was from the Lord. I went home that first Christmas, and I remember being in the car with some of my high school buddies, and they were playing some tunes that I hadn't heard for a whole semester. And they were playing them rather loudly. And from the back seat of the car, not being in charge of the radio, I I encouraged them perhaps to change the channel or turn it off. And my life took a change just like that. Well, what's with you? you gotten holy all of a sudden? I, I can still remember that echoing in my mind. I, I'd certainly never been called that before. Well, I said, I, I've kind of made a decision not to be listening to that kind of music. Oh, I lost some friends. Anything like that ever happened to anybody here? Chapter 4 and verse 4. They think it's strange that you run not with them in the same excessive riot, and they speak evil of you. Now, we don't want to go into too much detail, but 
How about a couple testimonies to that end? Can anybody else remember maybe that point in time when you said, I'm going to be all out for the Lord. I really want to be serious about my faith. Lee, go ahead. Why don't you stand up? You can turn around. I, I know I'll hear him, but I want you to hear him too. Mine's pretty short. That's all right. My best friend in high school, when we went into college, he got into marijuana, smoking it. And he was constantly trying to get me to try it. The only way I could shut him up was, I don't need marijuana. I have Jesus. And that shut him up. That's not holier than now, but that was the real reason why. Why am I going to try marijuana? I don't need it. Others. This is a common experience. You're no longer running to excess, and they think it's strange. I hope that's a common experience. Tony. My Savior, I thought I knew him, but I just heard about it. Yes. And then when I started reading his word, he jumped off the page into my heart. And I haven't been the same since I met him. He said he left me an instruction manual and he wanted me to represent him. Yes. I said, what? He said, yeah, I want you to represent me. Yeah. And so I realized I had to die to sin. Yes. I was crucified with him one day when yeah. he died at Calvary. And all the word of joy it is to represent him yeah. when I go to the prison. Yeah. Well, I know, Tony, from talking to you in times past, that both for you and Nola, when you came to really know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and decided to go to a church where God's word was being taught, that was a price to pay. Uh, there were some confusions along the way, but we're sure God, sure glad God helped you make that decision, Tony. We're glad you're here. Yes, go ahead, Mary. I'm on the south side at a public school. It seemed like there for a while some of the teachers kind of just would have this crabbing party in the teacher lounge. They just love to complain and they like to kind of talk about each other sometimes behind their backs. And I just never really felt comfortable. I was like, I can't be this negative all the time. I know that wasn't what God wanted me to do. So it was always really hard because they kind of wanted me to chime in with them. But when I would say no, then a lot of times I started noticing they just start, you know, behind me. But it was just what it was, you know. I was like, I don't want to go there. So it was just hard. Yeah. Let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. John, go ahead. Yeah, please. That'd be great. So-called friendly fire may be the toughest to try from believers, other believers. We have been called legalistic just because we have higher standards than other believers. Well, that's not legalism. We don't think ourselves as legalistic at all. But uh, when you get called names like that, it's pretty tough. Yes. And that's actually why we're here. <laughs> and we have been refreshed coming here. So we. Uh, but we've been through that sort of thing. Amen. Uh, that's good to mention. Friendly fire. A good way to say it. And uh, often when believers hold to a position where their conscience is set and other believers have not a similar set of conscience, it can bring tension. And even in our families, can't it? And we want to walk wisely, uh, keeping those family bonds. I'm always challenged by my reading of the Gospel of John. I think it's the ninth chapter where the Lord is in conversation with his brothers. And it's very evident, he says to his brothers, who 
were saying, why don't you go on up to the Feast of Tabernacles? And he says, my time has not yet come, but your time has already come. The world loves you. Me it hates. He says that to his brothers. There's an evident difference in where they stand and where their affections are. That can be a tricky territory. But one of the blessings of learning from the Lord is he gets through that tricky territory. In Acts chapter 1, his brothers are in the upper room with his mother. They've come to believe in him after the resurrection. And of course, we know that James and Jude, his half-brothers, entered into ministry. Leo, you had your hand up. Eleazar. You know, I grew up very challenged because our people did not speak Spanish or English, so we made up our own language, and then we didn't really know too much about the Lord. <coughs> my, my grandmother was in a Pentecostal church, but I got saved there. Afterwards, you know, uh, some of my friends said, well, how come he no longer associates with it? And the other guy, in my defense, he, he didn't know what else to say. He said, oh, that's because he said, hallelujah. You know, because that's what he heard the people talk about. Hallelujah is all that they're hallelujah. And this other guy would say, you mean he's not a, a Mormon? You know, they would heard about these things, but they didn't know what, what it was all about or anything, you know. You were not Catholic, you were not Catholic. <coughs> so. Yeah. Hard to, put, hard to put you anywhere at that point, isn't it? Well, praise the Lord for it. Well, that was what was happening here in the, to the people that Peter is writing uh, toward or revealing these things to. And he wants them to know that God's children need to be pure in a polluted world. Back when I used to get the Indianapolis Star, um, and that's probably everybody's confession around here this evening, but uh, back in the day, I remember when I first moved to Indianapolis, picking up the Indianapolis Star, and there was an article in the paper that kind of blew me away. Um, the article said there was an evangelical church in our community that was going to be hosting uh, beer and Bible study at the bar. Yeah. Some of you yeah, can remember uh, that advertisement. Kind of shocking. And I appreciate John's allusion to friendly fire. So having served in New England among radical apostate churches and being a solo light in a very dark place. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Phelps? Believe it or not, I first encountered uh, the LGBTQ question coming into churches in the Congregational and Methodist churches in the town where I served probably 30 years ago. Um, I remember a lady coming to our church from the South Congregational Church in Concord, New Hampshire, and she said, Pastor Phelps, you want to know why I'm coming to uh, Trinity. I said, sure, let me know. And she said, well, I was sick and in the hospital. I've been going to the congregational church for over 50 years. And our lesbian minister came in uh, to pray with me, and she took my hand. And as soon as she took my hand, I thought, I can no longer go to this church. That was 25, 30 years ago. So getting kind of used to being the solo light in a very dark place to come to Indianapolis, where there are a lot of, praise the Lord, gospel-preaching churches, and we ought to rejoice in that. Philippians 1 gives us our ethic. If Christ is preached, we're going to rejoice. And I don't expect that all the churches in Indianapolis do it exactly the way we do. I wish they did, but I don't expect that they will. And someday when we get to heaven, we can tell them, how, no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Keeping a humble spirit, the Apostle Paul said, 
even if Christ is preached with envy and, and, and challenge, we're supposed to rejoice, and we, and we really should rejoice, but we can still be burdened to think that someone would take the blessed holiness of God's Word into a bar with a beer, to somehow think they're going to radically be changing the world or relating in a way that we couldn't otherwise relate. What a travesty. Remember where we started this evening? We wandered along the way. I warned somebody this evening. My wife is working with the Kids for Truth. I, I've always had this tendency to chase more rabbits when my wife isn't sitting right here. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. But it is a, tra- a, a travesty. And when you think about what Spurgeon would say and what Kent Hughes has re- even recently said, there ought to be a burden in our heart found in this passage when it comes to the topic of being holy. There are commitments in this passage, after all, that every Christian is being called to consider. So let's look at that first commitment that is found here in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that word hope. What a wonderful word. Hope to the end. In verse 13, the word hope is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a Christian command. The Spirit of God is saying, fix your hope on the grace that is going to be yours at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fix in your mind that the Lord can come today. Fix in your mind that those blessed promises that are found in God's Word might be yours to experience today. God expects every believer then to live a hope-filled life, understanding that Christian hope is not some kind of vague optimism, but it's a confidential or a confident rather expectation. Hope is one of those three eternal virtues that are considered in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's interesting, when you study the New Testament, three of the dominant writers, of course, Paul and Peter and John, each one of them seems to be inspired by the Spirit of God to highlight one of these eternal character traits, eternal verities, eternal blessings, faith, hope, and love. So who would you say would be the writer who most focuses on faith when writing the New Testament? Paul, the just, can you finish it, shall live by faith. He says it over and again. Okay, and when you talk about, so which of the New Testament authors seems to focus most on love? John, of course. We, of course we know that, you know, uh, John is the beloved disciple who reveals to us that God is love. So that leaves only one, Peter, and Peter focuses on hope. Five times in 1 Peter, he's going to talk about hope. But hope isn't some kind of, well, it might happen. No, Christian hope is a certainty. It will happen. And so with that in mind, he says in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. Good old archaic English. But in the archaic English, there's a beautiful picture to be shared. In India, the men in southern India wear something called a mundu. I actually, for a time, owned one. You wouldn't catch me dead in it. (laughs) It's a wraparound skirt. I'm not comfortable in a skirt at all, I can tell you that. Not that I've ever tried. Okay, no rumors. Uh, But I'm especially, I would especially be uncomfortable if it was a wraparound, right? No belt. They just wrap it around, wear it around their waist. It goes all the way down to their ankles. When they're working, they lift it up and they tie it together. And the most unusual thing happens when you approach 
a worker in southern India who's wearing a moon dew. As you approach them, or maybe they're going into a religious service, they all loosen the top and let it flow down to their ankles as a show of respect. That's the picture that's being demonstrated here in verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. You can't wear that garment down to your ankles and get anything done. So he's saying, get yourself ready, get zeroed in, be focused, gird up the loins of your mind. Peter's not speaking in this passage about the power of positive thinking. By the way, A for the night, if you can tell me who originated the power of positive thinking. Oh, close, Robert Schuller. Zig Ziglar, no, no, not Zig. Uh, Norman Vince Beale, thank you. Tom got it. I couldn't remember, so I wanted to get somebody to tell me. <laughs> and, and I'm not old enough to remember that, so Pastor Tom, he came through like, sorry about that. The, the power of positive thinking was Norman Vincent Peale, and after the power of positive thinking came Robert Schuller. His was called something different. But the same idea that's being peddled everywhere today, which is um, think it and it will come to pass by the power of your mind, that is absolutely not what this is talking about. Girding up the loins of our mind and being sober and hoping to the end isn't the power of positive thinking, it's the power of biblical thinking, and there's a big difference. We're to be thinking God's thoughts after Him. We're to be in God's Word. Let the, your loins, he says in Ephesians 6 and verse 14, same imagery, let your loins be girt up with truth. Let your loins be girt up with truth. People of truth who are hiding God's Word in our hearts. I had a conversation last night with Hugh Wonderly, who's standing there in the back. We had dinner this last evening at the Good News Banquet downtown. It was a blessing. And Hugh said something that encouraged my heart. He said he works in a place where he has some time to kind of stand around. And in his time of standing around, as he works in security, he brings cards with him with prayer requests and verses to, to meditate on and consider. He's doing by that exactly what this passage says. He's girding up the loins of his mind. He's being in God's Word. And this passage says also, be sober. Be sober. Biblical sobriety is steadfastness during storms. It's the opposite of fretfulness. And so 1 Peter 4 and verse 7 is going to say, the end of all things is at hand. You can see it happening, the challenges. And by the way, that's 2,000 years ago. It's closer now than it was then. But 2,000 years ago when Peter writes to these people who have been persecuted, he's telling them the end of all things is at hand. So he says, be sober, be steadfast in your storms. Then he says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may devour. Gird up the loins of your mind, be a scripture-based believer, be sober, don't fall to pieces even during the storms, and hope. Have that enduring, abiding assurance that the Spirit of God gives, that the promises of God are real. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. My wife and I got engaged in the month of August to be married the, the following August. She finished her education in January. I was left behind before Tim LaHaye ever wrote his series of being left behind. She left college in January. She came back for two days in May for graduation. She left me behind again. I went to West Virginia. She went to Minnesota. 
Those were eight difficult long months. But I was steady and steadfast in them, and she was as well. You know why? We were hoping to the end. We had something that we anticipated. And that anticipation was a great motivation for living well, living wisely. And I thank the Lord for it. This passage says similarly for every believer. We have this wonderful abiding hope of the coming of the blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who's going to be revealed. So, dear Christian, gird up the loins of your mind even when you're scattered to far off places, even when you're going through times of great challenge and hope to the end. For the end is the revelation, that great appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy. A commitment to hope, a commitment to holiness. The word holy here represents something that is different, something that is different. And because we have all these positional blessings that he's covered in the first 12 verses of this chapter, we are now called upon to be holy. The Spirit of God says we're to be holy. Now, that is not a favored word in a lot of preaching today. We're living in the world of what many authors call worldly evangelicals, where there's hardly a shade of difference between how the world lives and how the professing believer tends to live. But this passage says there ought to be a difference. This passage says you don't fashion yourselves according to your former lust. You did that when you were ignorant. That's a strong word, isn't it? When you didn't know any better, but now you know better. Don't you realize you've been called to be holy even as He is holy? In all your lifestyle choices, verse 15, all manner of conversation. That's not just your words. That's in all of your lifestyle choices. We're supposed to be serving the Lord in a way that's different than the world. How many conversations have you had about that with your teenager? Well, if you're a normal parent and you really want your children to, to live for the Lord, you better have some conversations about that. And it's not enough simply to say, well, we don't do that because you're a Phelps. Now, that, that's true. Pretty good motivation. I've used that one. That tends to work more on the elementary level. Once they hit the teen years, we're starting to talk about our lifestyle choices. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says there's going to come a day when your child's going to come to you and say, why? What do you mean by these statutes and judgments? And then you will say, we were Pharaoh's bondmen. You better have a reason. So in every lifestyle choice, we need to be thinking, what would God's Word have me to do? How can I represent the Savior? Now, it doesn't mean that I have to go out and paint my face a funny color and wear my hair all spiked up and do something really weird to be different. No, we're, if you're modeling your life after the Lord, you're going to be different. He was. If you're letting your light so shine before men, you're going to be different. So he's saying here in this passage, you have a new mindset. You have a new mindset. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust, there ought to be a difference. Believers have a new nature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. We have a new nature. You know, there's a difference between dogs and cats. 
Now, I'm going to be really careful here because I know there are those who are sensitive anytime I mention cats. Dogs do some really disgusting things, don't they? I'm not going to even mention them. But if, you, if you're a dog owner, you know it's true. Cats, on the other hand, they're such prissy things. They're always cleaning themselves and preening themselves. There's a different nature. There's a different nature between a pig and a cat. A pig wallows in the mud. That's what they do by nature. A cat doesn't. There's a different nature between a vulture and a dove. A vulture is looking for roadkill. A dove's running away from it. Doesn't want to be roadkill either. There's a different nature between a Christian and a non-Christian. And those who try to blur the lines of that different nature are very, very unwise. God hasn't called us to be sheep wearing wolf's clothing. He's warned us that the wolves will come in wearing sheep's clothing. But we're living in a mixed up age where believers want to somehow look so close to the world and then you hear this fallacy, you'll never reach them until you're like them. How come in two millennia nobody's ever come up with that concept before? Reality is, unless we're fashioning ourselves according to that new nature and asking the age-old question, now what would Jesus do? We won't reach anybody. So Peter says, rejoice in the position that you have, but understand, you've been called to this commitment of holiness. It's It's a new mindset. It's a new paradigm. Things have to change. Old things are passing away and old things are becoming new. And you have a new model. You don't fashion yourself out. Now, This is a difficult one. But Pastor Phelps, you're wearing a collared shirt and I think it's made out of Oxford cloth and it has buttons on it. And other people in the community wear the same thing. Aren't you just like the world? Seriously, we're not having this conversation, right? But some people's minds go like that. I understand that. And I understand that Jesus wore garments that were like other garments that men wore in his day. But he didn't wear them immodestly. So there are some things that cross all generations. Modesty commitments. I mean, it's one thing to talk about, well, is it okay for a, a man to wear a, a jacket and a, a women to wear slacks? Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to wear clothes that look like other people in the community, except we wear them, I hope, more carefully. Why? Why what would motivate you to do that? Well, I would ask the question, what would the Lord have me do? So having a different mindset, because we're following a different model. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We have to go there, Romans chapter 12, because it's so accurate to where this passage is. I beseech you therefore, brethren, chapter 12 and verse 1, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's that word again, holy. Not W-H-O-L-Y but H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, that's your reasonable service. Anything less than that's unreasonable. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it's a constant battle. It's a constant challenge to prove and to ask, oh God, give me wisdom. What would be your will for my life in this matter? You have a new master, after all, back in 1 Peter 1 and verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, there's your new master. 
And I love the fact that Peter says, he that called you. No doubt Peter was remembering back when the Lord Jesus Christ called Peter and said, feed my sheep. We have a new master. And there's our new mandate, verse 16. Be holy, for I am holy. There can be no doubt. Believers are called to a higher standard of conduct because they're called to reflect the holiness of God. Christians are not to live a come-as-you-are, go-as-you-were mentality. The gospel calls us to live a different life. Why? We have a new mindset. We have a new model. We have a new master. We have a new mandate. And then we commit to a life of honor. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. God is no respecter of persons. He is without respecter of persons. He doesn't give you a buy because you graduated from a Christian college, you're going to a Christian school, or you go to Colonial Hills Baptist Church. God's no respecter of persons. Regardless of your denomination or your affiliation, He calls every believer to be a person committed to a lifestyle of holiness. And you'll soon stand in His presence. Pass the time of your sojourning. Remember where we started in verse 1? Strangers who were scattered. They were going through difficult days and they needed discernment. Christianity becomes powerless when it's polluted. And so God wants His children to be clean in an increasingly corrupt culture. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.